I'm Frederick Yurton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. So, dear advocates, season six of Pushback Talks now downloaded in 155 countries around the world. And we've been talking, and the issue is still there. It's, it's a big story and a big challenge for most cities and most people. So true, an issue that is not going away. This global housing crisis marches on in 2023. Yeah, but we will, we will be here and we will try to, to keep the light up. But I saw a picture in, in the paper the other day. It was a parking place at the airport of Davos, Switzerland. It was lined up with private jets. Mm. This kind of the, the image of the super rich are... Are, are a problem for the planet because they are they are spending more than anyone else. Yes, incredibly hypocritical. They f fly in their private jets to Davos to to supposedly save the planet. Yeah. It is Davos time, though. Yeah, and those who have seen Push, the film where it's featuring Leilani, knows that we we look into a little hedge fund called Blackstone. <laughs> <laughs> The world's biggest hedge fund, the vulture fund, they, the whole business idea is, of course, it's always to buy cheap and sell more expensive. Um, but they are, they're, they're working in a very aggressive way. And the, the president of Blackstone was just in London. So we are going to talk about London. And we have a very, very high-ranked uh, guest. And we're really happy to invite Tom Copley, who is... British Labour Party and, and um, politician, and he's a deputy mayor for housing and residential development in London, and been around for a long time in, in these issues. Uh, welcome to Pushback Talks, Tom. Hello, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be joining you for this conversation. Yeah, it is. And it's, we, we've, we've, we've been talking to, to housing politicians before. Uh, we also had Franz Timmermans, the vice president of, of the European Commission here, and, and we had a housing minister of Denmark here. And so it, it is, it's very nice to meet people who are actually daily working with these challenges. And you are certainly one of them, Tom. Um, well, I'm very, I'm very honored to be in that uh, illustrious company. <laughs> Leilani, London is a special place for you and for all of us. And, and you remember the, the meeting we did in the films around London. What, what is London for you in this, this case? Well, London has lots of meanings for me. I do have a sister who lives there and a niece and a nephew uh, living in London. So there's that personal connection, of course. Uh, but of course, for me, London is all about Grenfell. Um, in some ways that, that it, I was brought to London because of Grenfell. I mean, I've been there many times before, personal things, but uh, in a professional way, it was Grenfell that really obviously caught my attention. And then, of course, filming for Push and and just realizing the way in which finance works. If you want to understand the financialization of housing and how, how, fi how housing has become a financial product, really, a tool, you go to London. Is that how you see it also, Tom? Uh, I certainly think, I mean, Leilani, you, you mentioned uh, Grenfell and uh, I followed the inquiry 
very, very closely. Uh, there's a fantastic uh, new book out, by the way, by uh, Pete Apps of Inside Housing called Show Me the Bodies, which is all about uh, what happened at Grenfell and um, the systemic failure and the way that profit was paramount in uh, the minds of the companies and the organizations that were involved there. It's truly, truly shocking. And and uh, having followed the inquiry uh, quite closely, having uh, read Pete's book, having uh, you know f- followed what's been going on, um, there's absolutely no doubt that um, profit was placed above people's lives with tragic consequences. Uh, of course, 72 people died. And now we also, it's just been come out in the news recently, uh, firefighters, uh, there are a number of firefighters who are involved in the blaze who uh, now have been diagnosed with terminal cancer. So the horror of Grenfell um, continues. It continues. Um, Absolutely. And, and, you know, you can see in the the causes of that in the background, the deregulation agenda uh, of the government uh, of the time. They talked about, uh, you know, a a bonfire of the Quangos uh, tearing up red tape. But what actually the reality is red tape saves lives uh, and by tearing it up, um, we ended up uh, with a tragedy and a much wider building safety crisis as well that is costing billions and billions of pounds to fix. Yeah. In in the film, we, we meet with Nicholas Burton, one of the survivors, and, and he we also made several podcasts with, with Nicholas and, and I... I I send my love out to Nicholas because he's a, he's a very good friend and an amazing fighter for the for the people of of of, um, of Grenfell of the community. Uh, let's turn back to what this story we read in the Bloomberg News this this week of Jonathan Gray of Blackstone, who is one of the, the senior guys. His private net worth is only a few billion dollars. Uh, or maybe more, but but he talks about your country. He talks about 20, 2023. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a favorable year to deploy capital. And, uh, and they, he thinks the UK now can outperform the US as an investment destination because of the pounds decline. And of the, you know, basically because the UK has been performing so poorly, the economy is going down so much, they think, wow, it's shopping time, it's vulture <laughs> time. And he also, you know, he also says that the Sunak government, I mean, the, the conservative government you have now, has made some really good choices that will ultimately attract capital. And then just the same day, his president of the company, Steve Schwartzman, meets with Sonic at the 10 Downing Street. So he's received like a statesman by your prime minister. And we know that the, the Blackstone model is, is really creating a lot of sadness in, in the societies around the world and also in, in, in London. How do, you, how do you see this? It's, it's, it's a huge invasion of money that is actually pushing up the rents and, and the rents are already up like 30% recently. And you talk about the cost crisis mm-hmm. in your country where people can't afford food, they can't afford to, to heat their houses and now also the rents. How, how do you see this? Well, look, I mean, the last thing we want uh, is people coming in just to try and make uh, a quick buck uh, at the expense of the people of this country. And, 
you know, we are in a very bad way uh, in this country uh, at the moment. You, you, you will be aware uh, our NHS has been underinvested in for well over a decade. It's on its knees. Um, you're very lucky if you get a train turning up at all. Uh, you know, the train system isn't functioning. So many different parts uh, of our country are falling to pieces. Uh, and look, I'm, I'm not against investment. I think if there's a long-term patient capital that wants to, to come in uh, and will do so in a way that benefits the people of, of this country, ordinary people, that, then fine. But if it's just, you know, the vultures circling to rip the remaining meat off the carcass, then that's the last thing that we want. And long-term remaining capital is has been a long time since we, we saw that on the planet. I mean, so it's... it's um... So what do you find that capital? Maybe you, do you have any ideas, Leilani? <laughs> well, what I was going to ask, Tom, is, yeah. you know, what can the city do? I mean, you're a different political party <laughs> at city po political level, right? The mayor. And I'm just wondering, what do you have, what capacities do you have at city level to kind of push back against this? I know, for example, that, um, you're the mayor and you have committed to trying to build more housing, for example, and ensuring a big percentage of that would be deeply affordable or affordable housing. Um, presumably, you worry that that would be scooped up by these financial actors, et cetera. So just what's your interaction with that? So one area that we've had real success in London since Sadiq Khan came uh, into office in 2016 uh, is seriously increasing the proportion of affordable housing that's being delivered on private developments. So um, back when Sadiq was elected, um, he took over from the previous mayor, a man called Boris Johnson. You may have, uh, you may have heard of him. Um, uh, and at that time, we were getting 22% um, affordable housing out of private developers. Uh, last year, that had risen to 43%. So through the mayor's planning policies, through the London plan, uh, through him taking a much more serious approach towards actually getting um, social benefit uh, out of uh, private developers, we've had that success. He's also deploying his affordable housing funding uh, in quite a different way uh, from the way it's being deployed uh, outside of London. So he's taken a deliberate uh, policy of supporting councils, our local authorities, who prior to the 1980s, uh, you know, in the post-war period, delivered uh, between a third and half of all the homes that were being delivered in this country each year. Um, that was sort of choked off throughout the 80s and into the 90s. Uh, but he's now supporting councils to get back into the business of delivering council housing. Um, and last year, uh, we started more new council homes in London than in any year since 1979. And in fact, more than in the rest of the country, the rest of England, I should say, combined. So I think it does show that uh, even with, you know, despite the fact that the mayor of London um, has, uh, I think, probably more limited uh, levers of power than a lot of other mayors uh, in Europe and in North America, um, uh, he is, through his policies, uh, able um, to deliver um, some real benefits, deliver on the affordable housing uh, agenda. Yeah. I mean, in our last episode, we, we talked about the architects and, and this, this, the city architect of Malmo is a, an old co-worker with you, Finn Williams. So He's a great guy. Listen yes. to that. Yes. And, and, but he also mentioned that what the, the, your new developments that you're into now also have some good uh, architectural 
uh, high ambitions. Mm -hmm. So how do you how do you see that the, the role of architects in in this new era? So we obviously want to build uh, large numbers of council homes and social homes, but we also want to make sure they're of high quality and really high design and sustainability as well, which of course is very important. So architects are absolutely vital and there are a couple of architecture practices in London now that uh, predominantly or even exclusively now work with local authorities, with councils on their council housing programme. And if you look at what's being built by councils at the moment, in many cases, in fact, I would say possibly in most cases, in terms of the quality, in terms of the aesthetic, everything, it far outstrips what the private sector is delivering. And because councils as well, and it's not just about the, the look of the buildings and, you know, obviously beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I think a lot of what's going up looks very nice. It's also about the space inside as well and the quality of the, of the living space. So, you know, going above and beyond our space standards uh, you know, really lovely design features, making sure that these homes are super energy efficient so that, you know, council tenants' uh, energy bills are lower. Um, councils are putting a lot of thought uh, and a lot of effort uh, into uh, building a really high quality new generation of social housing. Hmm. But then you, you mentioned Boris Johnson, <laughs> former mayor. He was, well, I understand, selling a lot of the public land of London to the private market? Uh, I mean, I think, you know, Boris Johnson took a very uh, different approach in many uh, respects uh, to Zeke Khan. He didn't have uh, the same approach to affordable housing, for example. In fact, he, he scrapped his predecessor's 50% uh, uh, target for affordable housing in the London plan. He was much more lax about putting stuff, uh, approving stuff uh, through the planning system uh, that had low levels uh, of affordable um, housing. So he took a very, very different um, approach. What, what's happening under Sadiq Khan now, we're actually establishing um, a city hall developer, uh, which is going to, in the first stage, it's going to consolidate and expand a little bit more uh, of what city hall already does. But in the next phase, in the next term, it's going to actually be engaged in the direct delivery uh, of housing and that will give us you know a real key way of being able to intervene uh, in the market uh, and deliver re you know really high quality social affordable uh, and other forms of housing uh, as well uh, and i think it'll be a really important addition to what's going on in the market at the moment hmm. and leilani we talked to several other mayors like Colau in barcelona and they all come back to that we we want to do and we talked to the people in berlin they want to do more, but they need the national government to to be there. Leilani, this is something you are up to all the time. Absolutely. Although what Tom just outlined is some really key takeaways for, I think, our audience of what cities can do. I mean, the 43% of new development that should be affordable, and I'll, I have a couple of questions for you about that, but... 43% is very high. I mean, we have governments in North America saying 5% is too high. You can't possibly ask a developer to give more than 5% of their units for affordable. Well, here's the city of London demanding 43%. So that's really interesting for me as a takeaway. The idea that that affordable housing can be beautiful and and 
of course, energy efficient. And but, you know, the idea that you would have architects engaged in that is a, a really important takeaway. I can tell you, I mean, I live in the wasteland that is North America. I mean, <laughs> in terms of architecture, right? I mean, that I, I really can guarantee you this is not happening enough here. And and then the idea, this last idea of City Hall actually having its own development arm and then being able to deliver. I really think this is so important, bringing housing back to governments. And you talked at the top about, um, you know, people talk about deregulation being really great and that's what we need. And there's too much zoning and uh, permitting that's, that gets in the way of housing. And I think your point is so right that in actual fact, we need regulation and very purposeful policy to ensure developers are doing what they should be doing to help ease this this housing crisis. Sorry, I went on at length, but those are big takeaways that I really <laughs> you have want. Some questions to, for Tom. I Put do, them. because you yeah. mentioned this 43 percent. Um, we call it inclusionary zoning in some places. Um, and you said it would be affordable. How are you defining affordable and for how long? Of course, that's the usual question. And for how long will these units remain affordable? So it covers uh, a number of different affordable tenures. I should say that the 43%, that's on schemes approved by the mayor. And there's a certain sure. threshold. There's a certain threshold in terms of height and or number of units that come to the mayor. So sm smaller schemes that just go through local authority planning committees, we're not necessarily seeing that that level. But on the, on the major schemes that come to City Hall, we are. So that would encompass low-cost rent, so, so social rent uh, and social rent equivalent, it will, uh, which will be affordable, in, which will be in perpetuity. Things like London living rent, which is I always sort of talk about as kind of a key worker tenure, uh, which is based on um, a third of local um, incomes. Uh, 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 that so it's sort of sort of intermediate tenure. Uh, that uh, sometimes is in perpetuity and sometimes transitions over to shared ownership after ten years because. The way the government um, puts strings attached to our funding, and then there's there's shared ownership, which um, uh, you know is a sort of part rent, part buy, where people buy a share and can can in in theory staircase up to a hundred percent if 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 they wish to. So it covers all of those. Mm. We're very clear though, and the mayor is very clear uh, that um, the key tenure for London is social rent because that is we know is the uh, tenure for which there is the most need. You mentioned Leilani needing national government support. And, and yes, we do to, to a large extent need that. We need a lot of extra funding from the government if we're to actually deliver the level that we need uh, at the scale that we need. But we have, despite the lack of that government support, still made some good progress since 2016. Hmm. I mean, we, we live in the era of of social conflict, uh, I mean, the, the super rich are flying away, and and the poor are poorer than ever. I mean, I read mm -hmm. read this like in the UK, two hundred seventy one thousand homeless people, half of them children. Of course, most many of them are in some kind of shelter, so they're not on the streets, but still, they the, a shelter can be mm -hmm. something that changes from week to week. Where I understand Leilani, so how do you navigate such a it's I mean, must be on your table every day in your face. We've got, 
it, it's a growing, growing problem, and, it, and it's not just the housing shortage. It's also the way that the government, since 2010, has restricted benefits. So they've think, done things like they've frozen the rate of housing benefit. Uh, they've introduced a total benefit uh, cap. Uh, and what that means is that perhaps properties that would have been affordable to people on benefits before increasingly are no longer uh, affordable to those um, people, which then pushes them into homelessness. I went this morning to a new development that we're funding. Uh, it's just uh, along the, uh, just down the road from City Hall, actually. And we met a woman there and her children. They'd been living in temporary accommodation, temporary, I say in inverted commas, for 11 years. And now they just got a social rent flat in this new development that we're, that we're funding and they're absolutely delighted with it. But the idea you could be living essentially homeless in temporary accommodation for, for 10 years with three children, uh, I mean, it's shocking, isn't it? In one of the richest countries uh, on earth, there's a there's a huge amount of work that needs to be done to resolve this issue. But it's also rewarding to be a politician and to be able to deliver to that family. Must be it's very, the most, for, for you. It, it must be amazing. The best bit of the job is going and, and meeting people who move into the homes that we are that we are funding. I, I just wish that we had the resources and the government made the resources available for us to do even more. Mm. But one of the questions, of course, in in London would be, I mean, you've got a, a huge a number of people living rough or unhoused or in these temporary accommodations that are unsuitable for long term living. And at the same time, you have, you know, a lot of vacant homes and a lot of um, uh, homes that are underused, et cetera. And so, mm -hmm. you know, one wonders if there isn't something that could could be done to address that. I mean, I mean, people like to say, "Oh, look, there's you know five thousand homeless people and there's five thousand empty units," and like there's the answer. That's not obviously what I'm proposing. I understand it's far more complex. Um, I've seen cities do a variety of things: a vacant home tax, um, a, a very um, harsh tax to get vacant homeowners to either give up their properties. Um, you will know that from Barcelona and, and, and Lisbon, or to try to entice the owners to come on, sort of cough up their properties for social uses. I don't know if you're considering anything like that, but the I, I worry because, of course, the homeless um, situation in London mm. specifically is very bad. I mean, I read that in one borough, one in 21 people are homeless and in mm. London itself, one in 58. So those are big numbers and it's increasing, right? And a lot of people are first time homeless, right? In the last year or mm. two. Um, I know these are all concerns of yours, Tom. Just wondering what you think about that relationship between homelessness and vacant homes. Um, it, uh, you won't know, but in Push, there's a map um, that gets put up on the screen of, of the city of London and all these red dots of foreign-owned <laughs> homes. That doesn't mean each one is empty, but mostly they are underused or vacant. Um, so just wondering what you think. Yeah, I think so. We we actually have a relatively low rate of long-term uh, empty homes um, in London. But uh, I do think that more, much more uh, should be done in order to um, discourage people leaving homes empty. One well, of the problems that we've got uh, is we have very limited powers of the mayor. So the mayor isn't able to levy a vacant home charge, which I think would be a very sensible thing to do. Um, councils are now able, I think, to charge up to three times the rate of council tax on empty properties. 
However, of course, we know some of the owners of these properties are so are so vastly wealthy that you know three times council tax is is nothing to them. So um, I remember when Mr. Boris Johnson was mayor of London. Uh, he, uh, um, you know, in his sort of throwaway sort of way, went sort of, I think there should be a thousand percent tax on uh, empty properties. Of course, when he was in a position to actually deliver that as prime minister, he did nothing at all. Um, but certainly, I, I think, you know, it, the, the, the government should be looking at giving the power, whether it's to local authorities or to the mayor of London, uh, in order to charge some punitive rates on people that leave their properties empty long term. The other thing we have to think about as well, of course, is um, the whole situation around short term lets. Um, you know, that's been growing in London and in many other cities around the world. Um, Airbnb. Exactly, exactly. And, and in London, the, in theory, you're not allowed to rent out a property for a short term for short term for more than 90 nights a year. However, there's no way for local authorities to actually enforce that because they haven't got the information or the data to be able to know who's doing it and who isn't. So one thing that we've been calling for is a simple licensing and registration system uh, so that we know where those properties are and that would help local authorities to actually do the enforcement so that we can bring these properties back as long-term uh, homes rather than holiday lets. Yeah. I suppose the third pillar, sorry, Frederick, just to say, is to keep as many people housed as possible. And I, I think you were looking at, uh, uh, or Mayor Khan was looking at uh, rent freezes because mm. people are falling into homelessness because they can't, especially right now with the escalating cost of heating a place and food uh, and all expenses and inflation, uh, making it really difficult for people to pay their rent. Of course, if you don't pay your rent, you can so easily be evicted. So I, I presume that's part of this puzzle too. Uh, yes, we've been calling for the power to institute a rent freeze and longer term for London to have the power to introduce rent controls. Again, one, one of the one, one of the sort of things that um, makes sort of the Mayor of London, the office of Mayor of London, sort of stand out, uh, uh, you know, comparatively and not in a good way, is that we don't have the power over the private rented sector that you know other mayors around Europe and indeed in the United States. Uh, have um, the mayor has uh, you know no formal powers. We do that. We do what we can to use our influence, uh, uh, and we've done things. The mayor has done things like setting up a rogue landlord and agent uh, database, uh, for example. Um, but what we're really pushing for is that ability to implement a rent freeze to bring in uh, rent control uh, longer term. And you know, if we'd had a two-year rent freeze, we could have saved the average renter nearly three thousand pounds over those over that two-year. Uh, period, absolutely vital when at a time when, as you say, Leilani, you know, all uh, everyone else's bills, all the other bills are going up um, and putting real pressure on budgets, hope family budgets. Yeah, the the war in Ukraine has led to a lot of things, also to sanction against a big community of Londoners. Namely, the the guys, the Russians, <laughs> the oligarchs. Mm -hmm. uh, what people we know that been very influential also in the in the in the in the UK politics in some ways supporting mm. uh, conservative politicians and, and lobbying legislation and so on. So we know that, that there is a lot of properties belonging to these rich guys, but there is also oligarchs from a lot of other countries who are also placing money in parking money on properties in London without really living there it's more mm. a way of of laundering money or or you know so 
how would you? I mean, I know this is not so easy for you as a local politician, but if you would to think bigger, how would you would like to attack this? If you were well, in, I mean, actually, so last last year, just after the invasion of, of Ukraine, Sadiq Khan called for the property of oligarchs to be seized. Uh, because, as you say, there, there's quite a bit of it uh, in London, uh, and no doubt, I've no doubt that, as you say, um, some of it will be used as a front um, for um, money laundering. So, so yes, Sadiq came out very, very quickly after the invasion and, and called for for that property to be confiscated. The government, unfortunately, didn't didn't go through with that. One thing, I mean, one very simple uh, thing that should have been enacted years ago, but for whatever reason, um, perhaps because of certain influences over the ruling party, uh, never happened, was a registration of foreign property uh, ownership. This is something that David Cameron, when he was prime minister, actually promised to introduce, but it never, never happened. So we don't have that transparency. I think the, the very minimum that we should expect um, is transparency over who owns these properties, because often they're owned through very opaque shell companies, and you have to peel away layers like an onion in order to find out who the actual uh, real uh, owner behind it is. That's the story we we tell in in Push, uh, and mm. and it's it's and what I understand, we had Anna Mint on here uh, for a, um, a oh, yes. podcast just after uh, the Pan the Pandora Papers came, and and mm. the Pandora Papers revealed that some of these shell companies were actually British rich people who invested in their own city through this shell company. So it's, it's, we shouldn't focus only on Russians because of it's, course. it's ma ma mainly rich people who don't want to participate in society and, and be responsible citizens. Yeah. So. And this, this idea of beneficial ownership is so knowing who who's the warm body that actually owns that property is so important. Yes, for um, these vacant units, et cetera, just to sort of you should have a sense of like who owns your city, right? But also for tenants who are living in buildings often, I don't know if this is as true in London, but in many places I go, tenants will try to figure out who their landlord is. And I'll ask them, oh, who's your landlord? And they say, you know, X, Y, Z. And I say, no, no, that's a property management company. That's not actually your landlord. And they're like, oh, and then they try to dig. And what they get is, you know, corporation number one, two, three, four, five. They can't actually, or, you know, eventually it leads to some warm body and it's the secretary of so-and-so and clearly not the real owner. So I think that's a huge area um, to, to explore. I know Transparency International has been looking at mm. calls for more beneficial ownership and, and, you know, who owns our cities, who owns our, well, from my perspective, who owns what is a fundamental human right, right? So we, well, exactly. we need to know to hold them accountable, obviously, that's the reason. And I agree with your point of principle, we should know who owns our city. Yeah. Yeah. And what can you do about that, Tom? I think the main thing that we can do is, is try and use our influence with the government is to highlight, um, you know, really bad examples, you know, where, where they arise. And at some point, I think we just have to try and shame the government into doing the right thing. The, the, my worry is that if they haven't been shamed through, you know, having not taken action before Putin invaded Ukraine, and, you know, there's a lot of pressure then for them to bring forward this, this legislation, uh, then I don't know when they will. I think it might require a change of government in order to get the 
the action that we need uh, on this on this in terms of transparency. But the city can't do and you know house by house try to find out who they are. Can't you can't you make your own register? We're not able to know. We don't have. Uh, we won't have access to the necessary information, and we don't have the necessary resources to be able to, to do that at a at a city level. Unfortunately, I think this needs to be a national uh, thing, and the government just needs to get on and actually and actually do it and say to people, you need to register who the beneficial owner is, and if you don't register who the beneficial owner is within a certain period of time, uh, then perhaps the state should be able to just take the property. Um, to, in order to incentivize mm. to actually get on and uh, and reveal who they are. Because mm. when we are out showing the film, I mean, people ask what we what can we do in our city, and I normally tell them, look around who owns your city, try to find mm. out who. Because also in my city, we can see a big concentration of wealth. I mean, before we had thousands of different landlords, and now they're like maybe 30, 40, you know, and uh, three, four big ones, you know. So the, the concentration of wealth is also a big thing. And we made several mm -hmm. episodes about Berlin. You know, the biggest housing company, uh, Deutsche Wohnung, they have 350,000 apartments. It's like it's, they're mm. bigger and bigger. So it's, and and of course, and these guys are also, I mean, you know, Blackstone is now over and meeting with your prime minister. Mm. They are the biggest landlord on the planet. And the biggest landlord of the planet has a private meeting with the prime minister. I mean, it's so how we, we need to, I mean, I guess that's a part of your job also of the progressives of the world. How do you challenge that, that power, the biggest landlords? Mm. Well, if I yeah. if I might, uh, just yeah. to, because I it leads to another question to you, Tom, <laughs> to put you in the hot seat completely. Um so one of the things I've noticed in the UK is a kind of resistance to using human rights language around housing. And, and that is across parties, actually. Um, I know that the Labour Party may have in mind policies and programs that are more human rights compliant and human rights friendly. But the idea of, let's say, legislating the right to housing um, is not something that's viewed that favorably. And yet, when I'm traveling the world, I'm seeing a lot more pickup at city level in particular, people want to hear that their city government recognizes, not just can speak it, but recognizes in a meaningful way the right to housing or that national government does. And I'm seeing a lot of movement on that front. What I like about human rights isn't the language. It's nice. Everyone has the right to housing. Okay, that's a nice cry. But what I like about <laughs> it is it's an accountability mechanism. You don't enact through legislation, the right to housing without ensuring things like proper monitoring that the right is being delivered on, proper accountability that governments can be held accountable when they say they're going to do something, that they do it. And so I'm just interested to know what you think, like this lack of resonance within the UK. And I'll tell you, when I was rapporteur, the UK consistent, the UK national government consistently took the floor, kind of denouncing my reports and denouncing the right to housing as a justiciable right unto itself. So, just interested to know, do you, do you think it could have some currency and 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 value? Well, I'm, I'm quite interested uh, in that idea. I, I think that if we're going to have the right to housing, of course, it has to be backed up with the resources to deliver that. Uh, and if creating that right 
uh, can somehow uh, ensure that, that that those resources are leveraged in by the by the government, then I think that's all for the better. It also, of course, has to be the right to decent housing um, as well, uh, housing that is well managed, uh, housing that is of, of good uh, quality. But I do think that that whole issue of it being backed up by um, by the necessary funding and the necessary resources, because inevitably, if we're going to have the right to housing, we're going to need to vastly increase the amount of social rented housing and council housing that we have uh, in this country, because certainly in London, that's where the greatest uh, need uh, is. Uh, and that's going to require uh, a lot of public uh, investment uh, from, um, from from the government. So yes, I mean, I think, I, I think housing should and has to be um, a fundamental right. You can't, you can't live um, a decent life uh, without a decent home, in my view. Yeah. I agree with what you said. And I think, in fact, by articulating housing as a human right, the resources necessarily should flow because you can be held accountable to that right. So if I'm government and I'm committing to the right to housing, I know that if I'm going to be held accountable, I I need those resources so that I can come good on my commitments. So I completely agree with you. But it's the exactly. it's the I think sometimes governments forget how important human rights are to the everyday person like that woman living in homelessness who you now have housed her and her three kids right for her she's just had her fundamental right to housing realized and mm -hmm. that's a complete game changer for her future but more importantly probably from her perspective for the future of her children that's how we build wealth right society exactly. after society we build wealth by having secure housing affordable housing so Anyway, and, and you also destroy uh, wealth by put, exactly. kicking new people out into to homelessness because it's the, the way back is much longer. Exactly, but mm. it, it's so true. Uh, and actually, if you invest in decent, good quality housing that's affordable for people, you, the state can save so much money elsewhere. You know, uh, it, it reduces uh, people's uh, uh, call on the health service, you know, because they're healthier, because they're not living in moldy homes. It improves people's mental health. It improves kids' uh, education because they're not overcrowded. They've got space to do their homework after school. Loads of other things start to fall into place once you've solved the housing problem. So, um, and it is an investment in children's future. You know, you, you, once you have that that stable home, uh, that decent home, uh, you've got that platform uh, on which you can stand, uh, and that's so important. Uh, just just going back to the whole issue of, of, of rights, of course. I mean, unfortunately, we've got a government at the moment that um, is sort of um, riding roughshod even over the international agreements it signed. If you look what it's doing on refugees. Uh, uh, at the moment. I, I, I think some of the things in there are clearly in contravention of what the UK has signed up to in the Refugee Convention. So uh, we're not in a great place at the moment with the government in terms of human rights uh, in general. And I, I would say, Leilani, human rights is not only beautiful language. I, I, I think it's also about giving people language. Exactly. So, I mean, if you, Tom, as a, as a leading politician, give people the language that you have this mm -hmm. right, People will feel okay. I, ha it, I think that is also a change, because you know I, I, I always come back to this meeting we had in San Francisco after we showed uh, push at the mm -hmm. Castro, and a young woman came up to me and said, "Frederick, I feel less lonely now when I've seen your film. I understand it's not me. It's not my fault that I am in such a stress situation. It is the system mm -hmm. that is the, to blame." And I think when people can see that it's they are not 
losers because they are loose losers you know it's actually because the system are, are, are making them into to these kind of victims so i think it's to, to, to also to give people language the, the mm. people will be more a part of a collective and i think that's how you create change by making people feel less lonely i, yeah. I think that's really important yeah yeah and the way that governments end up legislating the right to housing or political parties end up adopting it is because people on the ground start making enough noise where they're like, right, we have to li now we have to listen. These are our constituents. They're saying this is very important to them. And that's, I mean, change always comes from the ground up. We know that. Um, it's always nice when you have um, political folks who understand and are open to it. You said you're open to the right to housing, so that's that's a good start, Tom. I'm going to start <laughs> pressuring the Labour Party and and uh, Mayor Khan to pressure the La Labour Party and get some. Gra I mean, there's already grassroots movements, of course, in in uh, throughout England, actually, not just in mm -hmm. London, really agitating a little bit more around the right to housing. So, all our UK listeners, you know, you can always. <laughs> Remember what Tom said here in the podcast: <laughs> housing right. is a human right, so you can hold him accountable. Yeah, or not. What, what are the? <laughs> I was going to say one well, of the problems we've got is that a lot of politicians spend time campaigning against housing in their in their own areas, uh, and this is this is a key issue. And uh, um, they, they tend to be thinking more of the people who have already got a home and who own their own home than people who actually need a home, and and, that, and that's a really big challenge. And uh, I think the government. Um, uh, because of its backbench MPs, is a little bit beholden to that um, attitude. Uh, and you see that in some of the policies, decisions they've taken recently. So that is a real challenge. Yes. And I see and that uh, globally, where politicians mm. who are pretty well housed themselves are not open um, to even recognizing that there is a housing crisis. So. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Tom, what is your big next thing? I think I think I've already mentioned it, which is the city hall developer. I mean, this is something that you know because of the the scale of it is is going to take you know, some time to actually get uh, off the ground. But our team at city hall is already working you know, at pace to uh, get the uh, get what we need to get together uh, for it uh, and to ensure that we've got this um, uh, that that we've got enough together that we can then hopefully. Uh, fulfill the mayor's commitment to uh, start doing direct delivery uh, of housing in the next mayoral term. So it's really, really exciting. Um, you know, we, we um, a big part of my job is 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 the stuff we do on um, uh, funding new affordable housing, and that's going to remain uh, a, a big part uh, of of what we do at City Hall. Uh, but this City Hall developer is a new and very exciting uh, addition to the work uh, that we're doing. So I think that's gonna be taking up quite a lot of my time over the coming months and years. So this is when you wake up at night and think, oh shit, this is so cool. Or, 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 <laughs> 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 Gotta make a difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, it, it's really exciting. It's not something that any mayor has done before. And um, I really hope this is gonna be a lasting legacy of this mayor um, for London. Cool. Lani, cool. you. You, we have we have to follow up and see what what happens. Absolutely. Uh, so we have the we have the oligarchs that still have to be handled, and we have a lot of homeless people in the streets. But you are now building more. So it's Leilani. Is it? What is your diagnosis of London? Is there a, is there any hope? 
<laughs> I would say I think Tom is in an unenviable position uh, with a lot of pressure on his shoulders uh, and with somewhat constrained powers within the mayor's office. So not an easy position. Um, I just encourage you to use every lever, <laughs> every creative um idea and policy idea you can come up with because um, as we know housing is a matter of life and death and uh, we know that um, obviously homelessness decreases one's life expectancy by half mm. and mm. so um, it's urgent and I know I know Tom from other circles we've been on uh, in other uh, gatherings together and and he is a listener and listens to what's happening in other parts of the world which is I think key to this right borrowing ideas mm. who's doing cool stuff Abs absolutely tell me, about, I... uh, tell me about your where you get your inspiration from Tom do you is there any city that inspires you extra? So uh, in terms of the private rented sector, I mean, uh, Vienna. Uh, Vienna inspires me in general. I mean, look at the wonderful history there of um, a city that built lots and lots of public housing that actually retained it as well when other cities were, were including in the UK, when, we, when you know, Margaret Thatcher introduced the right to buy in uh, the 1980s. You know, but Vienna kept hold of its uh, public housing, incredible architecture, uh, and they've got a very interesting system of rent control uh, and quite an effective system of rent control as well. So I certainly take uh, inspiration from um, Vienna. Uh, and I'm always on the lookout, a uh, bit of a magpie. If there's a good idea in another city in the world and we've got the power to do it in this country, then I want to snap that up. We, we had one podcast about France and they talked a lot about the community land trusts. Mm. Is, is that something you've been seeing? It's also a way of... That's kind of a, a different kind of capital, but it's also less spe speculative. Yeah, I used to be a member of a community land trust, uh, actually, and um, there, there is sort of they're a very small part of the market uh, in the UK and in London. But we, as uh, at City Hall, we have something called the Community Housing Fund, uh, and we use that to support uh, community-led uh, uh, housing. And there are a number of small developments. Um, uh, around the city going on that we are funding. So so yes, it's it's sort of in its infancy, I would say, in the UK, but uh, it's something that we really want to support because it really puts local people into the driving seat of what they want in their local areas. And you also take them away from the speculative flood of money. Mm. Ab uh, absolutely. It, 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 I mean, there's a wonderful community-led uh, development near where I live in the London borough of Lewisham. And... Um, it, it, the 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 people that will eventually move in and and, and live there, uh, there's an element of custom build to it. So they customise their homes, they put in a bit of uh, their own labour, which in exchange they then get a lower, um, I think a lower rent uh, or, on on the property in exchange for having done some of the the work on it themselves. I think that's a a really wonderful model, and it really puts people in in control and gives people a sense of ownership uh, uh, of their home and of and of their community. Mm. But it's not the numbers that you, we need to really change the situation. It's a very, it's a very small number at the moment, and and um, because a lot of these groups are sort of relatively new and and don't have the experience, obviously, of a large developer, um, they face particular challenges uh, in terms of navigating um, all the various sort of bureaucracy and, and and actually getting these things off the ground. But it's something that I'm very keen that we continue to support. Cool. And in regards to the Airbnbs and the mm. others, do you do you talk to other mayors in other cities how to kind of together take these guys on? Uh, 
Yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I, quite a few years ago, before I was doing this this role, I, I, I went to a, a sort of conference on this that was organised um, in, in Florence. Uh, you know, because they've got a a massive issue with the centre of the city being essentially hollowed out of residents and. Um, you know, it just becoming for tourists, and you know, Amsterdam has brought in um, various uh, regulations to try and, you know, combat what's been happening with short-term lets there. So yes, I've been in touch with other cities uh, around the world. I think there are some relatively simple uh, things the government can do, like a registration system, that would actually be a bit of a game changer uh, in London. I, I don't think it's going to require, you know. Uh, very complex legislation or anything like that. I just think some simple changes could make all the difference. Mm. That's cool. Yes, really I'll nice have to. to oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah go on, Leila. Only go to on. say, Tom, you probably don't know, but um, I worked with a group of uh, people to develop a thing called the Shift Directives uh, from financialized to rights based housing. And we cover short term platforms in it. Mm. There's 10 directives. Uh, I'll make sure that your people receive it. Uh, it's not do. a long e document. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You might find it interesting. Some in we, we sort of pooled interesting things going on around the world um, and uh, use those as recommendations. So it should be of interest to you. Great. Yes, please do send it over to me. We will also send the film Push so you can see they like yes. walk around the world. And there are some good <laughs> some good arguments and some very smart people in it, like uh, Saskia Sassen and, and um, Professor Stieglitz, the Nobel Prize winner. Mm -hmm. You know, so anyway, Tom, Really nice to have you on Pushback Talks, and uh, we wish you all the best for your work in London because it's needed. And and I asked would you, if if you saw inspiration, you have to send inspiration back to other cities because people are looking at London. So that's an extra little weight on your shoulders. Give us inspiration. Well, thank you for having me. And in, if, in terms of giving you inspiration, uh, if either of you, next time either of you are in London, let me know and I'll take you to see some of this wonderful new council housing that's being built and some of the fantastic architecture and design uh, and the great quality that we're seeing now in public housing in London. That's great. I'll take, I'll take you. you up on, on that for sure. Me too, for sure. So, Leilani, uh, we kicked off 2023, season six. Not bad. There it was. Yeah. And very cool to start with such a high ranked guest. Now we really have to go higher. So <laughs> who, where are we going now? <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But thank you very much and, uh, and see you soon. Uh, and Leilani, we are funding this uh, podcast with lots of money from nowhere. Mostly through love, but a little bit of money through our Patreon account. If you go to patreon.com, you'll find Pushback Talks and anyone can support us every little bit helps we have a we have an audience in many countries we have very little money and that's a part <laughs> of the game that's i mean that's right that's so we are happy and and as long as you're happy write to us tell us what you think and uh, and let's keep going see you soon thank you leilani thank you tom thanks frederick thanks tom Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To support the podcast, become a patron by going to patreon.com slash pushbacktalks or follow us on social media at make underscore the shift and push underscore the film.